up, everybody, and welcome to the Occupation Nation podcast, where we try to help you answer the question of, what do I want to be when I grow up? I'm your host, Zach Horvath, and today on the show, we are looking at how to build a career while living and traveling abroad. Our guest today has lived in multiple different countries, and she's also had multiple different occupations. She's been a sports journalist for the Olympics, which is so cool. She's also been a Snapchat content creator, as well as a TV producer and even a bartender. So it was so much fun talking to her and learning about all the different experiences she's been through and what she's seen along the way. So if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, and uh, that helps us out so much. And speaking of reviews... It's that time of the week again where we look at a review from all the different apps out there, and I pick a fan of the week. So if you want to be a fan of the week, leave a review, and it might just be you next week. So the fan of the week this week is Kennedy Mathis, and he says, Not the biggest podcast fan, but these are changing my mind. Highly recommended. So thank you so much to Kennedy. And before we get started with the interview, I just want to let you know that I'll leave our guest's website down below in the show notes. So if you want to go check her out after this episode, you can just head over to her website. It's really cool and you get to see all the fun stuff she does. So with all that said and done, let's get into the interview. My name is Edna and I'm a writer, photographer, traveler, and bartender. So let's get started with with you. I want to hear all about you and all the things you've done, where you've been. And uh, so just take me on that journey. Yeah. So I, my journey starts uh, in Pennsylvania. I was 18 and in college and decided to do a gap year in China to study Chinese. And I ended up loving being abroad from the get-go. And so I decided to stay overseas as long as I could and just make it my career and make it my life, I said, you know, I never really want to go back to the States. There's just so much world to explore. So after a year, year and a half in China, I moved to Singapore. I was there on a working holiday visa and was working for a reality TV show on their like social media strategy side. Um, From there, I got involved with sports journalism and that led me moving to Paris when I was 22. I was in Paris for two years and then Italy for a short bit as well as a sports journalist. And I was a writer and English tutor as a side job. And after a few years in sports journalism, which involved um, covering Olympics and FIFA under 17s and a few other events around the world, I then moved, I went traveling for a bit, but then moved to Shanghai um, when I was recruited by Ford Motor Company. So I worked on their Asia-Pacific communications team for just over a year and saved up enough money from working in China that I was able to go travel full-time. And so then I spent something about two years uh, traveling full-time. I became a full-time Snapchatter for a while. Uh, I wrote about food and travel or food and drink, and I got known for that and uh, produced a TV show and uh, did a bunch of freelance content things but then was feeling really really burnt out uh, living out of a suitcase and traveling and being in an airplane every week and so I moved to New Zealand to further develop my interest in alcohol and booze and cocktails and so I became a professional bartender uh, spent an entire year in Wellington learning how to bartend at one of the best bars in the city and then went back to traveling for uh, about a year. And then last, just a few months ago, I moved to Denver, where I currently am right now, to work for a nonprofit that serves immigrants and refugees. And I still bartend on the side. Wow. That is the very short version hey. of the last 10 years <laughs> of my life. <laughs> what a track record, though. I mean, oh, 11 years. Oh, gosh, it's been 11 years. I'm like losing track of time now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's a. That's a lot of stuff in a lot of places. Which one is the one where you're like, that was the best, or I had the best time, or or whatever? Hands down, living in Paris was the best. Changed my life. Changed a lot of uh, paths. Um, I think my life would have turned out very diff- differently if I never made that move to Paris. Um, 
when I made that move too, I had the choice between Paris or Italy. I had two very similar job offers. And even though I wanted to go with Italy, I'd, you know, loved this. I thought I'd loved the country since I was a kid, always wanted to visit. I knew Paris and learning French would be better for my career. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those American girls enamored with France and always had these dreams and fairy tales of, you know, moving to France. I was just like, all right, this is a job move. I'm doing this for my career. And I ended up, after a year or two, I really grew to love the city. I met, to this day, like the best people who are still in my life. And so Paris, for sure, changed how I viewed culture and fashion and just, I think, made me more of a well-rounded person, especially through the people that I was meeting there. Um, but job-wise, I would say all of the sports journalism stuff or the the travel writing that's afforded me some very rare opportunities that I otherwise would never have had access to. Uh, when I was a sports journalist, I spent a month in Azerbaijan for the FIFA under 17s. You've been a sports journalist, which how, how did you, did, have you always loved sports? Is that a thing? No, everyone assumes that. It's really funny. I actually don't care for sports too much. Okay. And I'm really bad at them. Everyone is like, oh, you must have played so much. And I was like, no, I'm terrible as an athlete and I'm a swimmer. I'm a bad swimmer at that, but like, I can't even do land sports, um, but that's not that's neither here nor there. I just always loved the Olympics ever since I was seven years old. The Atlanta Games, I knew that was my dream career, and I wanted to get involved however I could. And really, my career goals were to be involved behind the scenes, helping organize them. But the way I got my foot in the door was as a journalist. And so I started with the... I started by um, volunteering, actually, in Singapore. They hosted the first ever youth games, and I had just moved there, couldn't find a job, so I spent the first few weeks volunteering. And then through that, made the right, you know, met the right people and stayed in touch. And so a year later, when I was finished with my reality TV show job, I got back in touch and happened to get a role with the University Odd Games, uh, which were being held in China that year. And because I speak some Chinese... I think that's what was my in, uh, being a little bit bilingual. And then from there, it all just uh, kept going. That organization then kept giving me contract roles. I went to London, I went to Sochi, and then finally they brought me on full time. And that's when I moved to Italy. After I finished being a journalist, then I, you know, I was working for Ford doing the corporate thing, corporate communications. Um, and I really wanted to stay in the industry. And I was very worried that like, that was the end of the line for me, just a couple Olympics. And so when Rio rolled around, I still just took a chance and emailed some contacts and sent them my CV. And I was like, I know you don't, you haven't worked with me. You might not even know who I am, but I would love to work for you. Here's my CV. And that worked. And so I did Rio on the organizing side. And then I also did Pyeongchang last year. So, uh, so what were you doing in between like the Olympics? Is that when you were doing your other stuff? Yeah, it's great because it's kind of like I have these outlines for my future. Like when everyone asks, oh, where do you see yourself in five years? I've always known where I'll be in five years because I'm just like, okay, cool. What Olympics are coming up? And so I have that framework, but then in between, I can also pursue other interests without having to worry like, oh, is this going to be a long-term commitment for me? Because I always know that it's not like I have the, <laughs> the commitment that I want. Um, so that's why I was able to bartend for a year or go work for Ford for a year or yeah. you know, be a full-time travel blogger. Um, it's a good amount of freedom and stability rolled into one. Yeah, a lot of people think you can only go overseas for a year or two. You know, you go for a job, a contract, mm -hmm. or a working holiday visa and don't realize that you can just live your life abroad. It's not like this huge othering a thing it's like no there are people just like you who are also living their lives in france and in buenos aires or or japan like it's not like you have to go and live this complete other life and then you have to come back to your quote unquote normal life it's like you can also just have a normal life you can while being in different countries life. yeah you can Which climb up like every country has ladders you can always climb up different ladders and and i think we uh it's hard to see that because you get stuck, you know, you live in a town and 
your parents live here and your family lives somewhere and you get mm-hmm. stuck in this, this pigeonhole of, all right, I'm just going to grind it out and work it out here and I'll get there someday, but I really want to go there. And it sounds like you said, Hey, let's, let's just do this thing. Yeah. And I mean, for me, that, that came first, that desire, everything mm-hmm. else is secondary. I was just like, you know what? I want to move here. I'm going to make it happen. How do I make it happen? It wasn't a, well, I'm going to look for a job in this country, blah, blah, blah. It was just like, no. It's like, you're doing it. And then I'm I'll going to get here. Yeah. <laughs> I'd buy the one-way flight and be like, all right, I need to figure something else. Or I'm going to starve and get kicked out of the country. So just yeah. I forced myself into that position of necessity. See myself more as a person who, I don't know, sometimes I think it's naivete. of just like, well, why wouldn't? I do this you know I don't see the alternative that I think most people do of like oh well I could stay at home live near my parents get I, the I house. guess that's what I mean is is you 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 structure it in a way where you're like why not do this let's just do it yeah exactly and which is why you've done so many cool things because I mean just thinking it from me personally that would scare the crap out of me doing all that stuff i mean yeah. i don't know if i could I, do I it i think i don't let the alternatives scare me i don't talk myself out of it because you can yeah. always talk yourself out of anything it's like oh well i don't have the money i don't have the support system i don't know the language and i've never had the money or the support system or the language and i'm just like well but why should that stop me yeah yeah which is i mean that's that's incredible that you think that way and that's why you've done so many in, in awesome things because you don't let that stop you so if there's someone out there who is sitting at their house listening to this and they say i really want to travel the world what do you think the the first step for them to be is it just to do it like you said yeah uh i also realize that that i've been lucky you know i have a good passport um not everyone has an American passport. It can right. be difficult to get a working holiday visa because not every country is included in them. Um, so I'd say start by researching what areas you'd like to go to. Um, also know what your background is, what your expertise is in, what visas you can get. Um, if you're in high school or college, you know you can still kind of build a path that leads to that end goal. If you're out of college already, if you're looking to stay in the same industry, then, you know, start to read uh, maybe like network on Twitter, on LinkedIn, try to find people in your industry. Um, if you're looking to make a career change, then the world is your oyster, really. Um, I'd say just doing your research is a little bit key. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good place to start just so you have a foundation of an idea for where you would like to go. But otherwise, yeah, you you just can't, there's never going to be a right time. There's always going to be, oh, well, you know, someone's wedding's coming up and then this anniversary, this birthday, like, oh, I'm about to get a promotion at work. Like there's never going to be the perfect time. You have to just kind of bite the bullet and say, okay, by this date, I'm going to have packed up my things, sold my whatevers and gotten on a flight to this country that I want to go to. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is uh, it's great advice. Uh, I didn't honestly think about all that other stuff, like you said, the visas and the passport and all that good stuff. You got to have all those ducks in a row for sure. Just like when I fly, for example, I always make sure I have four things on me. It's my passport, my laptop, my camera, and my phone, or five, and my wallet. Um, but as long as I have those essentials, everything else I can replace. You know, everything else I can figure out. If I forgot shampoo, if I forgot clothes, if something gets, you know, my luggage gets entirely thrown into the ocean. As long as I have my most important things, everything else can fall into place. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's how I view moving abroad too. Like so long as I have a place to live and the right working papers and some money to get me like food (laughs) while I, Mm -hmm. when I'm started, everything else can kind of be worked out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, So now that we know your amazing story, let's start at your your first job. So I was in China when I was 18. Yeah. So I'd gone originally, that is my background. And so I wanted to be able to communicate with my family better and learn more about my heritage. And so I, that's why I chose China to begin with. Um, mm. But I ended up, that was my first encounter with people from different countries. And I think that's partly why Americans, like just to go like scope, zoom out here, um, Mm -hmm. big picture. I think Americans are afraid to make that leap abroad because 
everything is so far away and we don't have a lot of foreign um foreign interactions like when I was in Europe or when I was in Southeast Asia because the countries are so compact it's a lot easier to get around you know you can do weekends in Thailand and weekends in Amsterdam and travel doesn't seem like such a huge uh expensive thing Mm. that you have to plan for and take vacation time you know like it's not like you're flying or going from New York to California exactly and you are constantly talking to people and working with people from all these different countries. And so you're just used to this melting pot all the time. Whereas in the States, we're just used to each other. And anyone who isn't like us, we're kind of like, oh, what are you you doing here? I don't know if I can trust you. And so we're not built in with that automatic acceptance, I think. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved to China, I was 18. And, you know, I grew up in a really small white town in Pennsylvania. So I was kind of like that of like, oh, America is number one and we <laughs> control everything. And I got there. I was like, yeah, exactly. no, it sounds so, you know, silly in hindsight. But I was 18. I was like, oh my gosh, there are people from Australia and the UK and they all have their own, they're just like me and they have their own governments and they travel. And I was like, what are they doing in China? You know, I, it was just this whole world opened up to me. Um, and I was so sheltered and I just fell in love with it right away. And I loved learning about these other people's backgrounds, their countries, what their schooling education was like, you know, what brought them here. And I fell in love with, especially like Irish culture. So I got really involved with Gaelic football. Mm. And that's, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but I, I knew then and there that I wanted to stay in this life as long as I could and constantly be surrounded by different. And so I, all that to say, I did not study at all. I did not really uh, accomplish the purpose that I'd originally gone for because then I just wanted to hang out with my friends all the time. I became an English teacher at their schools. Mm. I was a substitute at other schools. I um, I did the bare minimum that I had to in my classes, but otherwise I was just playing Gaelic football and learning from all these other people. And so from there, I realized that my true love was in communications at the point at that point I'd been um getting a degree in political science and Mm. I realized I was going about it all wrong like I was truly better at communications and media and that kind of thing and from there I decided to expand more upon my communications um Mm. interest and so I went to Shanghai and there is a website there kind of like the whole Gothamist network um, so, you know, you have Gothamist and LASNS Fist. Um, so there's Shanghaiist. And it was actually started, it turned out, by a guy who was an alumnus of my very, very small school in Pennsylvania. So I reached out to him. He got me in touch with his editor, who was now running the site. And through that, I was able to join as a as an intern. Um, but that's how I cut my chops then in, like, starter journalism because it wasn't I didn't have any formal training it's just kind of like all right write one two three pieces a day on this thing that's happening in Shanghai or that thing so that's also where I started to get a little bit involved with food because I realized the stories I enjoyed writing most and came most easily to me were about food and drink and that scene but yeah so from there in Shanghai uh do you want to move on to Singapore yeah, let's do it. Let's just let's, let's bounce. That's a that's a that's a stubborn story, kind of, because I <laughs> had discovered. I didn't really want. I had no interest in Singapore. I couldn't have found it on a map. I only went because a guy I knew from college had started a job out there, um, and I had kind of piqued his interest in Asia in the first place. So he was somewhat grateful that I had put him on this path, and so. He offered his company paid for his apartment and he offered the spare room and rent free in, you know, 2008, 2009, it was turn, um, it was 2010 and there was a recession, right? So I was going to go where the free rent was. I didn't care where it was. And so I found that Singapore had a little known working holiday visa. I don't even know how I found it because it's back then it was not easy to track down. And so I applied for that. It was only good for six months, but, you know, got me working papers in the country. So I went on a one-way flight and man, I underestimated that. That was, you know, me clearly not doing my research. I was 20 when I made all these new plans to move and I was just like, oh, it's, it's Asia. I was ugh, so 
so naive. I was like, oh, it's Asia. Um, I can just teach English. Not realizing that Singapore speaks English as a first language. They learn it from the time they go to school. So uh, they're not going to want some 20-year-old who has zero teaching experience teaching it. And so, and on top of that, you know, Singapore is, is... very, very well developed in especially the economic and law and shipping sectors. And so most people who move there as expats are very well established in their careers. They're brought over by their companies, uh, I'd say average age in their 30s, at least. And so for me, it was really, really hard to find a job. So you had to have Singaporean citizenship or permanent residency um, or be Malaysian and otherwise they wouldn't hire you. So I couldn't even just be uh, a waitress to tide me over until I found a job. And so I was really starting to stress. I think it took me about six weeks. And one night I was like, all right, if I don't get a job tomorrow, I'm flying to Vietnam I just, you know, I tried, it didn't work. I had a friend who's teaching English in um, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. So I was like, I'm just going to join her. She seems like she's having a great time. And sure enough, when I like put that thought into my head, that deadline, that night I found a job on Craigslist of all places um, and had the interview and got the job. And that was the only job I even applied for interviewed in Singapore. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm staying here now. And so, yeah, I was in Singapore then for another uh, year, I think after that. Um, Wow. But that was just me being stubborn of like, well, (laughs) I don't know anything about this place, but I'm just going to find something to make it work anyway. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, uh, again, I think that's a great, um, trait, I guess you could say of, uh, you just making it work and just doing your thing as, as best you can. Let's, let's jump into the sports journalist thing. Cause I'm a, a huge sports fan, <laughs> but I won't get into like the sports itself. I want to hear about what you were doing and, and how you traveled to each place and what, what Olympics was your favorite and all that stuff. So, yeah, again, I'd mentioned I was volunteering. And so when I finished my job, I reached out and got my foot a door at this game in China. And from there, I was told that I, if I had known French, you know, I would be further along in my career and help my career. So mm-hmm. I decided to move to France for one. That's what prompted my search for jobs in, in any Francophone country. And then in between, there is an event in uh, Australia that was at the time the International Sailing Championships. And so I spent a lot of my own money that I barely had at 21, uh, 22. But I went there in five, six weeks in Australia, um, got some more experience there. And I'm saying all this because I'm trying to lay down this foundation of how important it is to really network and kind of put in your dues, especially when you're starting out in an industry. Um, so I did that. I did the thing in Australia and then I moved to France and um, started to study French and that company seeing now that I was living in Europe uh, asked, I think last minute someone couldn't go. So they're like, Hey, we already have an accreditation for London. Would you be able to make it? And so I had very understanding employers in Paris uh, who were like, yeah, all right, three weeks, you know, off you go. So I, I know I wouldn't have been able to develop my career if I also didn't have very understanding bosses who knew deep down. I told them straight up from the interview process, I was like, look, I'm trying to move to Europe because I want to get involved with the Olympics. So if something were to come up, this would be my priority. So I, it wasn't a shock to them. Um, I had laid it out to warn them. But yeah, that's how I was able to go to London last minute. And that was my first proper Olympics I covered as a journalist. I mostly covered athletics and swimming. Uh, As a swimmer, it was easy for me. And then uh, because we were very small athletics, obviously, with Usain Bolt and all those stories got the most eyeballs. So I was sent to cover those stories instead of, you know, archery. And uh, that still to this day, my favorite Olympics. They've all been... I have great memories from each one, but there's something very special about London, Um, partly because it was my first Olympics, but they also did a really great job in as, as a host. 
the mm-hmm. city. The, the was also, I mean, I don't know what happened, but the city was beautiful. It was sunny. I remember arriving and thinking, oh, I thought this would like be rainy and gray. And it was just gorgeous blue skies and warm and everyone was in such a great mood. And I was like, London is great. It's so friendly and sunny. And <laughs> so my first impressions definitely have carried with me <laughs> through the years of London. Um, so that was... And just to see those events in such iconic places, you know, right? with Big Ben and the palace and everything. What a um, combo of things going on. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like looking yeah. around like, oh my goodness. Yeah. I could not, I could not believe that, you know, the thing I'd wanted since I was a kid for as long as I can remember, I was like, here I am. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I for was sure. like 23 and I was like, oh man, have I peaked already? Is this it? Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm quite jealous. I gotta say, in that regard, that you got to go to all these Olympics. That is so so cool. Um, so when, yeah, did you see it's another it world. Work, or did you see it as like, like you said, where you're looking around, like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Was it hard to not get swept up into that and actually do the journalism side of it? Uh, you had moments of both. Um, the more Olympics you do, the more the less the shine remains, the you know, it's, you get to, yeah, it. the, uh, the rose colored glasses get kind of hazy. Um, mm-hmm. you do see it as work because, you know, your first Olympics or two, everything is so novel and you can't believe you're there and you're pinching yourself and, and obviously you get down and do the job, but there's always a part of you being like, Oh my God. And then like by your fourth, fifth, sixth Olympics, I know people who've done 10, 20 Olympics. Um, by that point, it's very much like, yeah, this is cool. This office. is also my life. This is my job. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you kind, you have those pinch me moments far, um, far They're, fewer times. Right. So right. That makes you sense. have to kind of remember, you have to treat, um, I remember in Pyeongchang last year, I was getting kind of snippy about something and I had to step back in my head and be like, okay, you have a very, you know, rare opportunity here. There are people who would kill to be in your position. Like, slow it down you know because mm-hmm. um, it's very easy to just take everything for granted um as it is with life so right but it is it is still amazing when you really look back and think about it so is there, love any, it. is there any like is there any two or three moments that you want to bring up that that is just like in, in in putting journalism aside just you personally is there any moments in there that you can remember off the top that go this is so cool Oh, so many. Any opening ceremony I go to, I'm just in awe. Um, those are definite pinching moments. Any Anytime I'm in a venue, really, I'm still just like my accreditation just gets me in. You know, <laughs> I can just walk right. through security and here I am. Um, in London, I had my first interview pretty much as a proper journalist ever with Muhammad Ali's daughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there's a photo of me interviewing her and I'm in my head, I am just like what is happening <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure um so that was that was kind of surreal um just the places i've been able to see besides london like sochi and pyeongchang and rio especially it was my first time in south america and there was one night i had stayed out with some friends and we went to france house and partied and I crashed because they were worth with one of the bigger networks. So they had like the nicer hotel rooms. So I crashed with them down on the beach. They were right on, I can't remember if it was like Copacabana or Ipanema, but they were right on it. And so I had to wake up pretty early to get back to my venue to start my job um, that day. But, you know, I walked out, it was probably just after sunrise. There was no one on the beach. There's, you know, that iconic Rio beach skyline. And there, it was, it was definitely a moment of like, wow, I'm here. In yeah, for sure. Brazil at the Olympics. Like it was, uh, there's those moments that are very humbling. Rob, I bet. Um, so now going on the flip side of that, um, when you're actually doing the journalism, take me through kind of what you did in terms of like getting what you needed to write. Like what's your process of that is my question. Yeah. Um, so as a journalist, I would be assigned my event to cover and I'd usually cover it from start to finish. So from like in Sochi, I covered hockey. And so as soon as they exited round robin stage, I was just at every hockey game covering it. And so I would, you watch the game as you're 
right as you're watching a game, you're already starting to formulate your story because especially in this digital age, you want to be that first person to publish as close to the buzzer as possible. So you want to pretty much have your story written by the time the game is finished and all you need to do is go to the press conference, throw in some quotes, polish it, send it to your editor, done. And so you'd be writing throughout the whole game. And that's why when I see a game that like, you know, in the last two minutes, everything changes. I feel for all the sports journalists, I know who are writing about it. Cause I'm like, Oh, you just had to rewrite your entire story. Oh. Um, but uh, those moments are fun too. It comes to the territory, but yeah. So you, you just have your outline written and then you right before the game ends, uh, like, so for hockey kind of with, a few minutes left um, unless very close and you still need to know what's happening uh, you kind of just make your way to the uh, mix zone and so that's where athletes go after the um, that's where athletes go after their event finishes before they go to the locker rooms they have to run they have to go through the mix zone and they don't have to speak to journalists but they do have to go through it and so you try to catch anyone in the mix zone uh, if you want to talk to someone about their performance if you want to talk to the coach or something because in the mix zone that's where you're going to get the most raw quotes they're fresh off the field of play they are a bit more in that moment as soon as you get them in the press conference room they're going to be a bit more political right exactly yeah you want that raw that raw yeah so the mix zone is perfect for that. So then after that, you uh, run to the press conference where you kind of get to talk to the coach, um, any big name that like, let's say in hockey, you know, you've got the stars of that team that you can ask questions and then, yeah, you file your story and then bam, you're on to the next one. So like, especially with hockey, they'd, they'd have, you know, two, three games in a row. So it's just like, watch it, write it, mix zone, press conference, and then run back and watch the next game and do it all over again, you know? You're right. So when you step in there, you know, you're going, it's going to be grind. Yeah, absolutely. I gotcha. So. Is there uh did you ever get like intimidated trying to, to be aggressive and get these quotes and ask these questions or was that just kind of part of the job? Oh, all the time. Um, Cause again, I didn't have any formal training. I was, 23 at my first olympics and then when sochi rolled around i was 24 because I, I hadn't hit my birthday yet so you know i felt very out of my depth i was around journalists who i've been reading for years who i've admired for years and here we are in the same mix zone and the same press conference room so i really took it more as a learning experience if i had a question i didn't think anyone else would ask i would ask it but for the most part i watched the senior um, experienced reporters who'd been doing this, you know, 30, 40 years and try to learn about the question they're asking and the approach as well, kind of taking little like psychological tips of how they were bonding with athletes and getting kind of better access. Like, for example, um, there are some reporters who follow sports specifically. And so those athletes know those reporters and in a mix zone, you'll see them just beeline to their you know quote their reporter because they know they like that guy they know that he he won't be a dick about his questions you know there's that trust in that relationship that's been built so i really appreciated watching how that happens as well i'm going to learn because you are you're literally surrounded by the best of the best why wouldn't you try to take it all in right and that's that's definitely a smart play i think i honestly didn't think about the whole you know the guy beeline into the person he's he know isn't gonna like screw him over so mm-hmm. that's that's actually i mean i'm gra- glad you brought that up because that makes sense if i'm an athlete i'm not gonna go to some random person that might twist my words right yeah you don't know that guy you don't know his agenda right. and i mean you you see it where there are athletes who've had relationships with certain reporters for decades even and so once in a while you read um an obituary of some sports journalist who has been in the industry for so long and there are athletes who are like I loved that guy I love talking to him in press conferences or like he's the only guy I would talk to like it's definitely a, a special bond to be built. Now let's let's get into the content stuff the snapshots and the travel and the all that yeah. how how do you even start doing that or how do you get into that It's more that you do something that you love and sometimes it just becomes popular and so instead of like let's 
take travel blogging is a great example where there are a lot of us who were doing it from 2008, 2009, 2010. And then around, I'd say, 11, 12, 13, it started to get this momentum. And it, for those of us who had already established ourselves a bit, it was easier for companies or anyone who was looking into travel blogging to say like, oh, this person already has a couple years of of uh, posts and experience and they could binge you know kind of like you binge watch a show on netflix you would binge read someone's posts and be like oh this is their life and i found that really fascinating and that was a really good community back then now it's just so uh so saturated everyone and their dog literally has a blog you know so like podcasting right yeah, podcasting is definitely <laughs> there. It's it's on that uptick, right? Suddenly everyone wants to start one. And right. so the people who had podcasts five years ago when it wasn't cool, they're now the ones. They're the leaders know, of that, right? Yeah, they're sitting on top of the hill laughing at the rest of us trying to catch up. And right. so that's kind of how it was for me. I was just lucky that I was doing this thing that was super uncool. I was taking photos of my food and everyone was laughing at me. And mm-hmm. I was getting some pretty deep side eyes. Oh, yeah. um, especially because I'm, I have Asian features. And so people would be like, there's that Chinese tourist taking photos of our food. Now, suddenly it's cool and everything's fine. So like, oh, they can it's make a living. Funny how that, it's so funny how that like, just like, in, like, and then now it's like, oh, you do that. That's so cool. You know? Right. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of got the worst. I got the short end of the stick on it because I, I did let it get to me. I felt so self-conscious about yeah, the taking photos of my food and everything. So I stopped right when it was starting to get big because I was just tired of feeling of like social negativity. anxiety from it. So I haven't really reaped too much of the benefits. But uh, overall, you know, I had been blogging for a long time, taking photographs for a long time. And so when I quit my job to travel in 2015, Snapchat was just becoming a thing. And I'd really just downloaded it because my sister, who is much younger than me, she, you know, was in college. She's like, no, like we can, we can stay in touch through Snapchat. So she was trying to teach me about it. And so I was like, all right, this time's in perfectly with my, you know, uh, nomadism that's about to begin. So I was just starting to document all the places I was going and just being like really silly. I really appreciated that the platform didn't have to be polished mm-hmm. like Instagram. And I could just, be like oh here's this really dumb thing that I don't need to spend more than two seconds on but here it is here's a photo and that was a thing that I thought was interesting but would never post on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and suddenly turns out everyone else was interested in these little quirks of my day too and so that's right when everyone's starting to write up like travel bloggers you should be following on Snapchat and why Snapchat is big and all of these think pieces and so I just kept getting name dropped in a lot of them especially Mm -hmm. because I started to develop this reputation i wasn't even aware of it um you were just doing your thing huh yeah well i had this reputation of being like the food and drink snapchatter they're like oh she travels but she's always going to show you what she's eating and i was like oh i do that and then (laughs) oh i do do that (laughs) like wait a sec yeah i have like 40 pictures of me (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i became known as like the the more culinary one because you had the adventure backpackers and the fashion backpackers and everyone kind of had their own little niche and i was that one who was just stuffing her face all the time <laughs> and so I kind of lead into it <laughs> and um and so from a combination of that like the 2016 was my biggest year I was writing up Paris travel guides because from my years of blogging in Paris people started to know that I was living there I knew the food and drink scene a little bit so I had a couple people reach out to me just to write Paris guides and then I the BBC thing came about because I was, um, I go to Venice every year for Carnival with friends. And one of those friends wrote about it on her blog. Uh, the show was looking to do a Venice episode. So they reached out to her. And again, this is the power of just networking and kind of doing what you do for a long time. Um, they reached out to her and she put them in touch with me. I was like, this girl is the one who knows about Venice. I don't really know. And so through that, it was, you know, a combination of luck and timing. And we ended up doing that show. And then a few months later, they reached out and said, hey, our producers stepping out of this, of the next few episodes, we've worked with you on the one episode, you know, our show, we know that we like working with you, would you want to step in as the the line producer? 
And I was like, yeah, absolutely, 100%, um, especially because they are trying to film episodes in France and Ireland, which, Northern Ireland, um, which, as I've mentioned, you know, I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. And so that that was kind of perfect for me to step into that role. And so I did that, again, thanks to just this, like, already built um, kind of story bank I'd had from my blogging days and my snapchatting and then I did Rio um after that the show did a few more episodes in Asia and it just it was crazy because people kept reaching out to me saying like hey we'll pay you just to snapchat for a day on our account wow um and so the craziest one that year then so after the show wrapped in Asia I went back to Europe and I I was going through this like really a heartbreaking breakup at the time I was like not in a good place and so I was really really burning out and then Airbnb who I'd worked with a couple times before brought me out to LA to snapchat for them from this huge event they were doing and while in LA I got an email from a an organization in Turkey saying hey we're bringing some travel content creators out um, you know vloggers and bloggers and instagrammers we're bringing them out to Turkey do you want to join? And, you know, I, I knew of this in the industry, but I'd never been invited. And I was like, what? This is happening to me now? And yeah. I thought it was too good to be true. I was like, there's no way it's going to fly me out to Istanbul from LA and then mm-hmm. take me on this week-long trip to Cappadocia and around Istanbul and then fly me to Dublin where I wanted to go next. Oh my gosh. And it, it all happened. Uh, there were there, it was right when um, things were a little bit hairy politically in 2016 in Turkey. So yeah. Um, quite a few people, I think, dropped out of it as well. And so for me, I was like, well, this is still such a great opportunity. And I knew people living in Istanbul and the way I've always approached fear in traveling anyways, like, look, if there's millions of people already living in this city and living their day-to-day lives, who am I to say, oh, I'm, I can just step away from this. You know, I, I feel like unless it's, you know, a seriously obviously dangerous situation that I shouldn't step into I was like if it's just fear of something could happen I'm still gonna do it because anything could happen just with me sitting on my front porch anyway so um that was definitely one of the best trips and uh perks I guess of that time of my life when I was just creating travel content that's crazy and because it is (laughs) I don't know. Honestly, even talking to you, telling some of these stories, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. I'm I'm about to turn 30 next month and I'm just rehashing all of my 20s. I'm like, I can't believe I did those things. Like, was that for real? It's one of those things that you hear other people and you're like, man, that'd be cool to do. But here I am talking to you and you've done it. (laughs) That's, um, That's so cool to me that you have been able to do all these I don't know what the word would be, these jobs that you hear about and you're like, I don't even know what that means, but that's cool. <laughs> and I I guess that's why I like talking about it too, is I'm just trying to show that like, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be like super special in some way. You don't have to be pretty and blonde and white. Like I am just some half motivated girl from small town, Pennsylvania, who was like, eh, I'm going to have an adventure. <laughs> and here you are you've been to a bunch of olympics you've uh travel blogs snapchat i mean content creator oh it's it's amazing what a I think, yeah i think the key actually now that i'm thinking about it the key was just not saying no to things if someone would be like do you want to do this i'd say yes do you want to try this job yes do you want to move to this country yes i never thought about not trying something and i think if people out there are trying to figure out how to make moves, make next steps. I think just taking a chance on something you wouldn't normally expect to can really help open a lot of doors. Yeah. And I think that's one of the major, you know, stopping points for a lot of people is it's too, it's too easy to say no. Right. Yeah. You're comfortable where you are. Why would you throw that away for the unknown? I'm not moving wherever or yeah. Right. Um, Let's get into the last step here. And how in the world did you get into bartending? <laughs> yeah. So 
from that time in my mid twenties where I was starting to focus more on food and drink and travel, mm-hmm. I really got into cocktails. And I, it was thanks to a partner at the time who was into them and he really got me into it. And he had the budget <laughs> where I did not as a freelance writer, but he um, was like, oh, you should try this and try that. And we'd go to a lot of cocktail bars and every time, cause we traveled a lot together. And every time we went to a new city, we would also seek out the, uh, the good cocktail bars. And we talked to the bartenders and um, in Paris, we had some, really outstanding bartender friends so there's just this community already so we would go to Tokyo and be like oh do you know so-and-so from this bar in China or this bar in France like yeah I love that guy and already you have this connection and so I grew to really appreciate the bartending community not only for their creativity but also for their their friendliness and their openness and when you travel so much it's so exhausting to constantly try to make friends and get to know people on the ground and in such a short period of time as well. And the going into a cocktail bar is just this immediate in. And you can also, you know, they have their fingers on the pulse of that city too. So you can say like, what's really worth seeing here? I have X days. Should I really go see this thing that the internet tells me to? Or is this restaurant really that good? And you, you get all of this insight. And so for me, that became a very um, important part of travel and kind of the thing I looked forward to most when I would get to a new city is researching the bar scene and finding those people. And so after a few years, I decided that I no longer wanted to be just the bar fly on the other side of the bar. I wanted to really get into the nitty gritty. Um, If I love something enough, I really want to get into it and know all about it. And so for me, this was like the equivalent of getting a master's maybe where people know they're interested in something. So they'll go back to school and study it. For me, it was like that, except instead of taking out thousands of dollars in loans and going back to school, I moved to New Zealand and just got behind a bar because that's the best kind of learning for that work is just experiential. Mm -hmm. So, and I chose New Zealand because I, of the remaining working holiday visas I had, it was Australia or New Zealand. And I wanted to save Australia for um, a later date in case a sports event came up. And so I was like, all right, New Zealand it is because they have caps of 30 and I was heading into my late twenties. I knew time was running out. So I was like, all right, I'll do New Zealand and I'll do Australia after that. And New Zealand's a smaller market as well. So I thought I had a better chance of getting into a bar and actually learning and not just being a bar back for eight months. You know, when you only have the one, one year visa, every Mm -hmm. month really counts. So that's how I decided to do that. I really wanted to just be one of the bartenders instead of just being a bar fly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a good idea. Um, Plus it's just a really good skill to have. I knew if I ever had lean months where writing wasn't coming through or something like that, I could always bartend. It's, it's a very transferable skill. Right. Yeah. And that's a, I, I was actually going to bring that up where that's one of those things that you can just kind of have in your back pocket and be like, Oh, bam, I can do this. Yeah. And uh, Manhattan is a Manhattan. In terms of bartending, what are, what are some of the, you know, interactions you have? Is it sounds like you, uh, or it seems like you'd work with a lot of guests and deal with people. Is there any cool stories that you can come off the top to be like, this happened? Um, Or is there any drinks that's like favorites? Yeah. Well, so working in New Zealand was a good start for me because I worked at a bar that was quite well known and had a good reputation established already in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was already working to a high standard. I wasn't just, you know, learning gin and tonics at a club. It was the, I was learning the, how do I say this? I was learning the essentials. So this is an old fashioned, this is a Rob Roy. And I had a very, very good bar manager who knew that I wanted to learn and uh, really kind of study. And so he taught me everything, explained the why, which I found very important of like, this is why we polish glasses this way. This is why we do the ice this way. You know, it wasn't just, okay, do it this way. This is how we do it. End of story. I really appreciated getting into the nitty gritty. And that, I think that carries you very far um, in this kind of in this line of work because that's a bit more transferable than if you were to go to another bar and they're like, Oh, well we do the ice this way. And it's like, well, 
okay, but you know, for this reason and that reason, we could do it a different way. You know, just that kind of little tiny pedantic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then because my bar was also very well known, we'd apparently it was like a favorite of the Lord of the Rings cast when they were filming back in the day. Hey oh. And so we'd occasionally still have celebrities come in. Um, but because I don't really follow the like celebrity world i wouldn't know it until they'd left and people like oh did you see that that was the guy from the matrix and i was like what so whatever i guess mr smith or whatever he was filming a movie in uh new zealand and so he came in for i think he came in a couple times for drinks and food and i was like oh yeah i can see it he also had a beard so like yeah i guess i see it but you know (laughs) bartending in general i'd say if people are looking into it as an occupation Mm -hmm. uh, what i've read from like forums and stuff people like oh should i go to this school should i go to that school it's no if you want to start learning how to bartend the best thing is to go somewhere ask if they need a bar back because as a bar back you get the layout of the whole bar you're kind of like the goalie in the back you can see all the action you can see how the parts fit together and you also learn where everything is in the bar. <laughs> and so that's all very important. And so then you can work your way up right from the bottom. If you go to a school, it's really hard to, the way I was I was told when I tried to get into the industry, it's like, it's really hard to unteach or unlearn bad habits. It's better if you can go into a bar and they can just train you up the way they want a bartender to be. Um, and so it's, just kind of like well you've just spent a bunch of money to learn something that you could have learned for free while also getting paid in a bar so i'd say start if you want to get your friend the door just start in the door don't pay someone else to teach you things so what would you say is the hardest part of being a bartender is it learning drinks is it dealing with people nah uh some of it is customer service you definitely have like in any service industry you have Mm -hmm. people who will be frustrating but for me, at least the hardest part is the lifestyle. It can be very toxic uh, if you let it because it is abnormal hours, um, especially depending. Like in Denver, it's not too bad. Most bars close at midnight or two. But uh, where I worked in New Zealand, we we had a license till three. It doesn't mean we always were open till three, but sometimes we were. And, you know, you usually get out of there 1, 2 a.m., everyone's your your whole social circle then is bartenders because those are the other people who can keep the same hours as you right you can't meet up with your friends who work nine to five jobs because they're asleep and so you're all out drinking then because that's what you do and you go to other bars that are open and you're going to bed at 5 a.m and you're eating crap food at 5 a.m or you know you're not even eating dinner till 12 at midnight and it's just it really wrecks with your system of the the off sleep schedule, the crap food, if you're not treating your body right, if you're not exercising, if you're not drinking enough water, it just, a few years of that can really uh, kind of destroy you. <laughs> so you have to, you have to really take care of yourself. It's yeah. very easy to get caught up in that lifestyle too. Cause of course you, it is fun. Don't get me wrong. It, we wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun, but you right. kind of have to, it really took me a while to realize, to step back and be like, whoa, I need to pump the brakes a bit. This is, I don't want to continue down this road. So I yeah, would. I, I could see your body just being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a huge stressor. Um, so I had to learn how to occasionally say no to going out or going up, but just having sparkling water and getting more sleep. Um, the, the lifestyle I'd say is the hardest part. Okay. Yeah. And- but yeah, it is, it is a physical job too. You know, you're on your feet, you're, um, you're coming in to open and set up everything and then at close you're sweeping and mopping and putting up chairs and it's it's a physical job mm-hmm. um and you're you know lifting boxes of product or uh things like that and then oh there's also the kind of mental uh stress as well i know when they put out those lists of like oh most stressful jobs people always give it a lot of flack because things like bartender and chef uh, and server are really high up there and people don't realize that it is very, very stressful, even though it seems like a, you know, it's not late for death. You get your drink a couple minutes late. That's fine. The world moves on, but it still is so stressful because you do have 
people waiting for their drinks. You can see how busy the bar is. You have 10 drinks and they all, one requires stirring, one requires shaking, one requires an egg white, which requires a double shake. And so you're constantly doing all of this logic in your head um, to be like, when do I make this drink in what order? And that person wants to close out their tab. I can see them. And this person is getting impatient. I can see them. Uh, Cause that's the thing when you're at a bar, we do see you, we see everyone, like right. we know what's going on. Uh, it's not that we don't see you. So you don't have to like wave us down, but we see it and we're processing, processing this all in real time. And so it can get pretty hectic. Uh, I personally am a little high strung anyway. So when things are high energy, I get even more high energy and I really appreciate my colleagues at the bar who always just really calm, even if there's 20 people waiting for a drink in front of us, they're just still very calm and chill. Cause then I just become kind of manic. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, um, my wife has, she's, she's done the whole restaurant thing and I know how people are when you get, you know, you get around their food and they're yeah. waiting on it and they just give you these looks like, hurry up and you're just like right and it's like do you see that you're not the only person in here but it tip people good come on let's just go into that for a second (laughs) these people are serving you and working for you basically so tip them good i just want to throw that out there because that yeah literally now i I mean there's cases where there's cases where okay maybe they don't deserve the best tip right but yeah but never not tip exactly so now that we know a little bit more about that I think underlying themes that I'm trying to encourage people into okay. are just saying yes to things and not letting fear hold you back. Um, I mean, touche. <laughs> yeah, just try new things. You know, I didn't want to move to Singapore necessarily, but I just was like, yeah, let's give it a try. And then I ended up working for a reality TV show. And, you know, if, the way I love to approach my life is even if it doesn't work out, it's still going to be a good story. And I, maybe it's just the journalist to me, but I'm like, yeah, I'll just do it for the story. This might not get me where I want to go, but I'm going to tell this story for the rest of my life at parties, you know? But you know, like life doesn't have to be linear. You don't have to be like, oh, well, I can't do this because it's not going to fit into my 10 year plan. And then it'll throw everything off. It's like, you can zigzag, you can, go off and do this thing for a year or that other thing for six months and you won't know until you try it. And I really love the possibilities that open up when you are willing to just accept them. For sure. Uh, So what would you say is some of the, the bad parts or, or, or bad's not the right word. Just (laughs) the, there are downsides, the downsides. Yeah. The downsides of, of traveling and, and being open and, and doing things like that. Um, the, the big ones that come to mind, obviously are your relationships, uh, family, friends, romantic, they all suffer, especially I've noticed into my late twenties when everyone's really starting to settle down and being Mm -hmm. a little less, uh, mobile. Um, obviously it changes in some cities, like all my friends in London and Paris and Singapore, all still in their thirties, living it up, not really having kids. So, you know, it changes, but I, especially since I've moved back to the States, I've noticed this. I, I don't fit into any one community. I, I love that I can visit my friends who are still in different cities around the world and I can jump into their community, but I, you know, I have very tenuous links to everyone and everything. And part of me loves that. I love that I have so many, like my web is so wide but at the other at the same time it's like a spider's web is very thin um it is very fragile and i don't know i don't have the support system i think or that that net that a lot of people who have stayed in the same place for years have you know um and you miss a lot of weddings birthdays anniversaries Uh, I'm not super close to my family, so I see them once every two years or so. And, you know, we're all, we're all good. We email, we text, whatever. But I know for some people, it is really hard to go a few months without seeing their family. And so that's uh, something to consider for sure is how much you're willing to invest in your relationships or how much you want to invest. And then also just burnout. I've become very minimalist. Uh, When I started out at 18, I was pretty materialistic you know I found joy in shopping online and if things went bad I'd want to go to the mall and 
a few years after all of this, you know, everything I own fits into a suitcase and a backpack. And even then I'm stressed about how much I have because half of the things in my suitcase are really just sentimental. If I was really putting, you know, a magnifying glass to it, I only need half of the things in my suitcase. So it's, it does get mentally exhausting though, of not having permanence. Just Mm -hmm. everything in your life is temporary, your friendships, your belongings, your house, you, you just can't, have roots anywhere and you just have to decide if that's important to you like for me i the idea of roots terrifies me whenever i get comfortable in a place i'm like all right it's time to pack up it's time to leave get a new job like make new friends i i don't want roots yet i'm sure i might in the future but for me i just want to live as many lives as possible before i have to pick one (laughs) so would you say that's because you're are you are you nervous to like commit to making roots or is it that you, there's just more you want to do? It's, I think those are tied. They're related because I, it's just like one huge universal lifelong FOMO. If, if I move here, then I can't like, even when I moved to Denver, I was like, okay, if I move to Denver, I'm not moving to Hanoi. Like that is Hanoi off the table. Everything has a cost. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the cost of this city is not moving there. And I always wonder if these alternate timelines, right? Of right. if I had chosen to move to Buenos Aires, where would I be right now? And I even think of that when I see the people I am with currently. I see my friends here in Denver. I'm like, man, if I hadn't moved here, I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't have this friendship and our shared experiences that have been really great. You know, so it's it's a positive and negative, but you're always I just always want to know what else is out there. Like, great. I know the friends I have here. We'll stay in touch on Facebook. I'll see you when I come back through your town. I want to move on to the next life, you know, the next community, the more people that I can meet and the lessons I can learn. I always just want to keep learning from people, their cultures and language. And I never want to just be stagnant. And so so I think that's why I keep moving too. So what's next? You said you, you feel a little burnt out, but uh, it sounds like even though if you feel a little burned out, you're going to be moving here in a few Oh, 100%. Years. Yeah, that's that's a classic Edna move. I <laughs> burn out and I want stability. And then as soon as I'm stable, I'm like, God, I am so bored. You're like, all right, time to go. <laughs> yep. I do not know the meaning of the word balance. Yeah. Um, so, so is so- there any... What's next is, I mean, I still really, really want to move to Hanoi. I love Hanoi. That place just like sparked instant joy in me. Um, I also, for some reason, really just want to go to Buenos Aires. I have never been to Argentina. I know nothing about it, but something about the idea of it speaks to me. So I could get there and within a month be like, eh, actually, I was wrong because Italy was like that for me. I got there and after three months was like, you know what? This isn't for me. But I want to at least be able to know and never wonder what it would have been like to move to Argentina and just explore more of South America, learn Spanish. Um, Sydney is also on the list. But uh, as I turn 30 next month, I think my window for Australia is quickly closing. So unless I get a company to actually sponsor me out there. But who knows? I If I've learned anything from the last 10 years, it's not to plan too much because there are curveballs that will that will always come your way and if they come my way I will say yes to them and you know if I have to stay in the states a bit more uh because obviously this is the one place I don't have to worry about a work visa mm-hmm. um I really love Pittsburgh actually I'm not gonna lie I I hate being so typical of you know the salmon comes home to their nest at the end of yeah wow their no, life <laughs> but man I being a Pennsylvania girl Pittsburgh really speaks to me. It is a beautiful city. It's really up and coming. Everyone is so kind and down to earth. And I, I could definitely spend some time there. <laughs> sounds. So who like, knows where I'll be? I was about to say, it sounds like who knows. I, I may see on Instagram like two years from now, and who knows, right? Oh God, I could be in like Kenya. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, exactly. It's all open like that. See, for me, it, it's amazing to talk to you because my life is the complete opposite. Grew up in a yeah. small town. Guess where I'm at? In the small town. In the small town. <laughs> yep. Maybe one day. But it's doable. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing I would recommend too is for every excuse you have, I can find you at least five people with blogs <laughs> who have overcome it. Right. Right. So it's like, no. no. And I hate excuses. I'm a big, again, I think it goes into the sports thing. I hate excuses. 
Um, for me, I hear an excuse and I hear, I don't want it bad enough or I don't care enough. Like I know people who have moved abroad with kids. I know people who are traveling while deaf, traveling while in a wheelchair, um, traveling with six kids. You know, if there is some sort of reason you think you can't do it, I can definitely find you someone who is. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I'm trying to tell my wife. <laughs> like, let's do it. <laughs> let's just freaking do it, man. Um, because yeah. we're actually we're we're gonna have a kid here um in July. So oh, congrats. Well thank you. Yeah, and um it's it's I'm I'm excited to be a dad, but also to go experience those things with her, right? Um Yeah, absolutely. That was another reason really? why I was excited to talk to you because um I want I want to show her the world because I know that it ain't just this small town in America where everyone knows everybody and you have these yeah. customs, right? I want, yeah. I want to culture up. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot out there. Right. So, uh, yeah. I mean that, that is a downside though for me. I, I'll totally admit that I, I wonder about a future, you know, I don't want to be 50 and alone. Um, right. I, you know, you talk about your wife and having a kid and that's all beautiful. And I, I do have a partner. Um, right now but it's I know that he wants kids and I'm just like what does that mean for my future uh, as a traveler as someone who's very independent and likes to just you know one day pack up and fly to a new country right you um, go from from doing your own thing to you have this human that you have to yeah. like, and you can do that in your own. 20s but in my 30s I'm just like okay that biological clock is definitely ticking you know um after 35, you're considered a geriatric pregnancy, which is a horrible phrase. It's a horrible um, word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you become high risk. And so it's it's things that now going into this next decade of my life, this next chapter, I really have to start to consider that balance that I've never had to before. Um, Does that scare because, the crap out of you? Oh, 100%. I think about it constantly now. Because uh, my partner is also one of those people who is very close to his family. He he goes back to see them. They live in different states, but he still sees them like once a month. And so uh, you definitely have that trade-off of how much do I do for myself mm -hmm. and how much am I willing to compromise for someone else? And so if we're talking downsides, it's not necessarily a downside, but it's it, just a it reality. Is a, it is a consideration. Yeah, you you can't have it all. <laughs> Um, I, I've enjoyed talking about this actually. It's been really, really nice to kind of, I, I don't know, hopefully just inspire someone else. Yeah. And, and that's my goal of this is I want someone to hear this and go, wow, it is possible. Like it, don't, don't take it from me because I don't know, take it from you because you've done it. And, and it's a real realistic thing out there. I just hope to, I hope someone out there, at least one person, is now a little more open to possibility yeah. than all of this will have been worth it. I think it's a great note to add on. It's just like, do what you want to do, not what people tell you you should be doing. So thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks so much. Let's take right. it easy. You too. Have a good one. And that'll do it. Thanks, Edna, so much for coming on the show and talking about what you do. And I hope you guys learned a lot and had some fun. I thought it was awesome. And she just proved that if you just go out and do it and try your best, that, you know, you could go to so many different places and do so many different things. So uh, if you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and, and share with your friends. Uh, let's help as many people as we can. So with that, maybe, just maybe, traveling and living abroad is in your future. Thanks, and we'll see you on the next one.